You can turn over in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing our study through the book of Philippians in uh, chapter 3 there, and today we want to look at verses 18 and 19. I'm going to go ahead and just read verses 17 and, and the following. Brethren, join me, join in following my example, and note those who so walk. As you have for us a pattern, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And we've been in this portion of scripture for a little bit, and, and uh, Paul's talking here about pursuing the prize in the Christian life. And uh, in verse 14, he says, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says he's pursuing a prize. He's pressing toward a goal. And we've talked about that and how those are athletic terms and they don't mean that you, you give up um, before you even get in the race. That You're on the starting line and you have to start the race to finish it. So the first thing you have to understand is you have to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're not even on the track. You're not even in the race. Um, and that's kind of the single focus here in Paul's life. And we noted in the last couple studies that the prize and the goal to Paul are the exact same thing. They're not two different things. And that is to be like Jesus Christ. That's his single focus. That's why in verse 8 he says, I count everything to be lost. Um, and I have one great request, and that's to know the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 13, we looked at that last week, and he said, one thing I do. Uh, the one thing that he, he's doing, forgetting everything else, is he's I pressing toward the goal. Well, what's the one thing he has in mind? He's focusing on Jesus Christ. And he wants to know him so well, um, so deeply, so richly, that that affects every facet of his life, of his walk. Now, you don't hear that very often today in Christian circles. You don't hear that aspect of the gospel in Christian circles. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of chaos out there in, in Christian circles. All you have to do is go to the local Christian bookstore and look at the bookshelf. And you've got how-to books on everything under the sun. But it all boils down to this. If you know Christ and your goal is to be more like him each and every day, then all of your service, all your relationships, all that you, you do as far as worship goes, everything spins off being like Christ because that's the ultimate goal. Um, if we're like Christ, then we'll worship God in a way that he wants to be worshipped. If we're like Christ, we'll serve God in a way that he wants to be served. If we're like Christ, then we'll relate to people around us in love the way that he would relate to them. In other words, the simple focus of our Christian walk is not, you know, uh, an overwhelming um, buffet of things that we have to do. It's one thing. It boils down to one thing. And that's what Paul says here. The simple focus of his life was to be like Christ. That's why in Colossians 3.16 it says that he wanted Christ to dwell in him richly. 
why we must gaze at the glory of Christ in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're told to do that so that we can be changed into His image. God wants to transform us. That's why Christ must be fully formed in us as believers. As Galatians 4.19, Paul prays. And that's why we have to abide in Him. That's why the Bible says we should walk in Him and walk in the way in which He walked. We're to be like Christ. That's the goal of our lives. And you know what? That's something only the Holy Spirit can do in you. You can't take a class, I want to be like Jesus, here's three easy steps. It doesn't work that way. It's something that the Holy Spirit of God has to transform your heart, transform your mind. And when you come to Christ, He does that in a split second. You're a new creature in Christ, the Bible says. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. And sometimes I think as Christians we live like that verse said, you know, uh, some things have become new. Some things have passed away, but there's still some old stuff there and you're going to have to do. But that's not what the verse says. It says, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God, when we come to Christ, it's not that we're adding Jesus to our lives. Sometimes I think that's what we think. You know, okay, we have all these little compartments in our life. We have work, we have family, we have social things, hobbies, all that stuff. And then we hear about Christ and we say, well, yeah, I can add them in there. And so we add them to the list of things that we do. And so our Christianity ends up being something that we do once a week on a Sunday. We come together on a Sunday morning and we sing songs and, yeah, we're touched by the music, we're touched by the whatever, you know, the fellowship we share with each other. And it's just another facet of our life. It's just another little compartment that we shove Jesus into thinking that now we have religion too. Boy, now aren't I, uh, you know, look at me, I'm a whole package now. I have the spiritual, I have the everything. And that's not what it's about. When, when you come to Christ, He doesn't say He wants to be added to your life. The Bible clearly says that if you want to you commit your life to Christ, it costs you everything. Everything you have. Jesus said even, it may even cost your own family. I remember when I was a brand new believer, I took my nephew out to get baptized. And I was getting baptized in a creek in Pennsylvania in April. There's still some snow on the ground. It was crazy that I thought, well, they said you need to get baptized. And there's this little church. They didn't have a baptismal. So we went to this creek out, Little Sock Creek, and got down there. And, and uh, my nephew asked while we were there, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Can I get baptized? He said, well, I don't want to talk to the pastor. So he walked him through the things. Are you sure you're a believer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he wanted to get baptized. So sure, you can get baptized. Well, I remember when I, we went home from that. And uh, tell you what, it, it definitely woke me up that morning. <laughs> it, was, it was frigid. But uh, we got baptized. And I remember going home to my brother's house where I was living there at the time. And, and I remember... Um, you know, when I was home from college, I was living there. And I remember going in the ha house, and uh, he was like, where were you guys at? I said, oh, we went to church, and, you know, go ahead and tell him, Jamie, you know what happened? He said, oh, I got baptized. And my brother came unglued. He just became totally unglued. You what? Where did you get baptized? And he went into this tirade of, you know, just anger, the whole thing. How dare you take my son and have him, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm just standing there like dumbfounded thinking, what's the big deal? You know, his mind, we're Catholic, and you don't, you know, and all that whole thing. And I thought, boy, what did I do? Well, for a while there, he kind of turned, turned against me. I mean, this is like my dad, kind of adopted father almost. Um, but, you know, he, he just didn't understand it. 
And so sometimes when you commit your life to Christ, when you come to Christ, it's going to cost you. It's not just a free ride. It's not just, you know, oh great, now I have Jesus in my life and, and that would just be another compartment of my life. Um, we have to make sure that we understand that when we come to Christ, He wants everything that we are, everything that we have, and He doesn't just add Himself to our lives, but He transforms us, changes us into the person that He wants us to be. So we're a brand new person. Brand new. That's what true conversion is all about. And you look through the Bible where people came and they encountered Jesus Christ. You know, you've had, had everything from lepers and blind people and, and adulterous women. They encounter Christ. What happens to them? Their lives are changed. And when their lives are changed, that legitimizes their faith. And they're not preoccupied about themselves after that conversion. See, sometimes we get so preoccupied with ourselves and we want to be happy. Oh, you know what? That's not why Jesus saved you. He didn't save you to be happy. Someone once asked me, it's in a book, but uh, somebody asked me, what's the purpose of marriage? And someone responded, well, to be happy. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not. Anybody that's married can tell you the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. Now, does happiness come out of that? I hope so. <laughs> that's part of the relationship. But that's not the God-given purpose of marriage. What's the God-given purpose of marriage? To have kids? No. That's part of it, but that's not it. The God-given purpose to marriage is to make you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. God takes two totally different people, totally different, and He shoves them in a house together and says, here, now live together in harmony. I mean, that's impossible. Even with Christ, it's impossible. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a thing. We boil these things down to everything has to be happy. Well, that's not the purpose. The purpose of marriage is to conform you more into the image of son, of the son, just like the purpose of anything else is. Why do you go through trials? Why do I go through trials? We all go through trials so that God can conform us more fully to the image of his son. And so if we're preoccupied with ourselves it's going to be kind of a downer. <laughs> we're not going to have a lot of happiness in our life. But when we're preoccupied with Christ, and we understand that all these things, all these trials in my life, everything that's up to this point, God has allowed for a purpose. And that purpose is to make us, to conform us, to transform us into the image of His Son. Now, the unfortunate thing, we live in a society which is filled with humanistic philosophy today. And it's really had an effect on Christians. It's had an effect on theology. It's had an effect on churches. Because basically what humanistic philosophy says is that you have a right to be happy. That's your right. And when you're not happy, you have to figure out what's wrong so you can fix the problem. And it's even filtered itself into different aspects of the church. Psychologists say this, man will be happy, man will be content, man will be satisfied when his desires are met. Duh. You think? You know, I don't have a doctor in psychology, but I don't, anybody can tell you that. That's, that's a no-brainer. When his needs are met, when his longings are met, when he is fulfilled. Yeah, I think that would probably make anybody happy. But you have all this stuff creeping into the church, the, the whole aspect of, of the good news of self-worth. You know, 
Um, the good news of the, the value of you as a person, yeah, you're, I'm not saying you're not valuable as a person. That's not my point. But you know what I'm saying. There's an overemphasis on that. The good news of security, the good news of significance, the good news of prosperity, health, wealth, happiness, the psychological gospel as well as the prosperity gospel. All that stuff has crept into our churches today. And we wonder why, you know, we look around and we see Christians who don't have the joy of the Lord because they're focusing on the wrong thing. So when you have a problem in your life, what do you have to do? According to the world, well, you've got to figure out what the problem is. You've got to solve that problem. And once you solve that problem, then you'll have fulfillment. Then you'll be happy. You've got to fill your pockets with fulfillment, with self-gratification, and, and then you'll be a happy person. And that's really reached into the church in a lot of different ways. Just go to a number of churches and listen to to the, the, the series that the pastors are preaching. You know, how to have a happy family, how to have a happy marriage, how to have this, how to have that. You know, 10 steps to this, 10 steps to that. You know, and all those things are well-meaning, and I'm not being critical in a sense that you can't get some good out of those, because you can. But I'm saying, is that the purpose of the Christian life? There's a guy, Tony Walter, he wrote a book called um, The New Religion. And in it, he says this, it's fashionable to follow the view of some uh, psychologists that the self is a bundle of needs and that personal growth is the business of progressively meeting these needs. Christians, many Christians go along with such beliefs. He goes on, he says, one mark of the almost total success of this new morality is that the Christian church traditionally keen on mortifying the desires of the flesh, on crucifying the needs of, of the self, in pursuit of Christ-likeness, has eagerly adopted the language of needs for itself. Now we hear things like this, that Jesus will meet your every need. Do you ever hear that? I hear that all the time. As though we were some kind of divine psychiatrist or some kind of divine detergent. And even as though God were simply, and as though God were simply to serve us, and that's kind of what it's boiled down to. We come to Christ and we think, well, what's he going to do for me? You know, uh, is he going to make my life happy again? Well, you don't have to read through the Gospels very long to find out that when you come to Christ, he transforms you, he turns you into a new person. But you also better be ready, be ready for some suffering. That's, that's what the Christian life is about. Not only the blessings of being with the Lord and salvation and, and all that, but also, you know what, he's appointed for us certain sufferings in life, certain trials that are just, that's our lot in life. Why does one person get cancer and another person not? I don't know. But I guarantee you, if that person's a believer and you go up and you say, why do you think God gave you that cancer? They could probably come up with a reason. They could probably say, you know what, I, even if they say, I don't know, but I benefited from it in this way. And so we have this, this thing that boils down to a man-centered theology. It's all about man. A man-centered salvation. We choose God. We make the decision. A man-centered sanctification. How do you become more like Christ? It's, once again, it's not something that you can do. It's something the Holy Spirit has to do in you. And so the goal of the Christian living in a lot of Christians today has been 
basically boiled down to, you know what, meet my needs. If you meet my needs, then I'll be satisfied. If you're not going to meet my needs, then I'll go somewhere else. If you're not going to meet my needs, then I'm not going to be fulfilled. If you're not going to meet my needs and make me feel happy and make me feel good about myself and give me a good self-image and, and a high standard of self-worth, you know, I don't want to hear the negative stuff. I don't want to hear about sin or hell or judgment or condemnation, any of that stuff. Don't bring that up to me. And there are teacher, teachers and, and even churches that, that have fully changed the way that they, they teach the Word of God, is to omit certain things because the negative energy and all this wackiness. We're just here to discover the truth, amen? I mean, and we want to discover it the way God tells us, through His Word. And so the satisfaction of a perceived need is the goal of my salvation, the goal of my sanctification. You know, what we have to do is we have to shift from this man-centered theology and self-centeredness and look at what the Bible says. And that's what Paul's trying to do here in Philippians chapter 3. He's saying, you know what, the goal of your salvation is that you may be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's the goal of your salvation. That's the goal of your sanctification, not to make you happy. <laughs> the goal of our lives is not to make us satisfied, but to make sure that God is satisfied. That's the goal of our lives, or it should be. But unfortunately, today in the society we live, man becomes the center. Man becomes the focus rather than Christ. It's a major change. A.W. Tozer said this, Faith looks out instead of in, and the whole of life falls into line. When faith looks out instead of in, the whole of life falls into line. Christian sanctification is the pursuit of something outside of ourselves. We don't have it within ourselves to be sanctified before God. It's the pursuit of Christ-likeness. It's the pursuit of Christ's conforming to his image. And it's a matter of knowing him deeper and closer. And that's the goal of our lives. But so many times we get distracted. We get distracted on this, on this, this road we're on, on this path, and we want to go over here, we want to go there, and, and God's constantly having to kind of put almost blinders on our eyes, saying, just focus on Christ. If you just focus on Christ, you'll see what I have for you. The goal is not the satisfaction of our own desires for greater significance or greater wealth or greater you know, prosperity, any of that stuff. It's irrelevant to God. That doesn't mean anything to Him. The goal of our life is to be like Christ. And I think that we need to make sure that we focus on that. And so he says here, and where I'm getting with this is, remember last week we looked at the first kind of process that we go through and it's following the example in verse 17 he said join in following my example join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern now remember last week I talked about when we went rock climbing and you know the guy was on top trying to tell me how to get up the mountain up the side of the rock well that's almost impossible but when someone came along and said, here's how you do it, and he was right beside me on the rock and he showed me where to put my feet and my hands, well, then it was a no-brainer. It was very easy. See, 
And sometimes, I mean, yeah, we need to focus on Christ, don't get me wrong, but you have to understand, Christ never went through the process of sanctification. Christ never was not, there was never a time in Christ's life where he wasn't holy. There was never a time when Christ wasn't, where he was climbing up the rock. He was always and has always and will always be on top of the rock. And so what he's done is he's brought certain people into our lives sometimes, here with the Philippians, the Apostle Paul. And he says, look, I'm on this road. I'm, I'm focused on the same path you are. I'm trying to become more like Christ. Now follow me and follow my path. And that's what he's doing. He's not lifting himself up and saying, look at me, I'm already up here on top of the rock with Jesus and shouting directions down at us. That's not what he's doing. Paul's saying, come alongside us. I'll show you the way. And so the, the, the Christ is a pattern of perfection. But Paul and others, and even today, disciples, whatever, mentors that you people call them, whatever they are, people in your lives, they're not just a, a pattern of perfection, but they're, the, the, they show us the way to that perfection as we pursue that. And so he said, make sure you, you follow an example. Make sure you have a, a pattern to follow. What well, takes us to point two. He says, not only are we to have examples to follow, but we're also to flee enemies. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. Then he says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Boy, what a strong statement that is. So first of all, he says, first of all, you want to have an example to follow. Yeah, ultimately it's Christ, but Christ and God and his mercy and his grace leaves us some examples with flesh on here that we could follow as well. And I'd encourage you to, to latch hold of somebody and say, hey, teach me something I don't know and follow their example as they follow Christ. Well, the second thing he says, you not only have to follow Christ and follow those who follow Christ, but you have to make sure that you're, you're fleeing from the enemies of Christ. We're to flee the enemies of Christ. And, and Paul is always concerned about this. The whole Bible is filled with, with um, exhortations to be careful of, of, of the enemies of, of the cross. And he says, follow my pattern as we follow Christ. But you know what? There's some people out there. And he uses the word many there in verse 18. And in the Greek, that means many. Okay, that means a lot. That means the majority. That means there's a lot of people out there who are seeking to deceive. There's a lot of people out there who are enemies of Christ. In other words, they're everywhere. That's the idea. And see, here's the... Here's the challenge for us in the society in which we live. As we are exposed to media of all kinds, you know, you can be in your car and, and, and you can be listening to three things if you wanted to, or in your home and you listen to stereo, you're watching TV, you got a DVD playing, all this stuff's going on. It's all it's out there. Well, what does that call for us? It calls for us to, to be discerning, especially when it comes to those who are lifting them up as teachers or preachers or anything like that, we have to practice discernment. We have to. If we don't, we're going to be deceived. We're going to be misled. So in verses 18 and 19, he wants to focus in on this. And he introduces to us these enemies of the cross. 
In other words, these are people who are kind of masquerading. They have a mask on. They look like a Christian. They act like a Christian. But you know what? They're an enemy. They're not people that are going to come into the church with 666 written on their forehead with a, you know, uh, sign saying, I worship Satan. That's not who he's talking about. Those people are very obvious. Okay, we need to stay away from them. Okay, we know that. No, he's talking about these people that are, that are kind of aligning themselves with Christ. And it takes discernment to understand who they are. In the book of Matthew, Jesus said, Beware of those who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're disguising themselves as part of the fold, but inwardly they're wolves. Later on in Matthew 23, he describes them again. And Jesus was very much concerned about false teachers, false leaders, antichrists. If you look through the book of Acts, you find it once again, over and over, you have sorcerers, you have all sorts of people that were kind of aligning themselves with Christ and they were found out. And once again, in Paul's epistles, over and over, he, he warns us to stay away from these things. Look for examples who are following Christ. Stay away from these people who are following endless genealogies and speculations and false teachers. And he encourages us to know sound doctrine, pure doctrine. See, and this is just one area where a lot of times the modern church has let this slip. They say, well, you know, Sunday mornings you can't teach people doctrine because if you teach people doctrine, they'll be bored. And if they're bored, they won't come to your church. Well, you know what? I'm not really, I don't really, that doesn't really bother me. Because you know what? I know the only way that we can practice discernment is to know what God's Word says. It's not what somebody else says. It's not what I say or somebody on the radio. It's what does God's Word say? What does God, God's Word make plain to us when it comes to these things? Peter gives us an entire epistle, Second Peter, to unmask false teachers. I mean, it was a pressing thing then, it's a pressing thing now. And he has to tell the Philippians here that, you know what, there are enemies of the cross that you may not realize are enemies of the cross. I mean, I'm just amazed today when you, you sit down in your living room and you turn on a Christian program, some of the stuff that goes on in the name of Christ. And you know what? Some of it is not clearly wrong. Some of it, you may listen to an individual three or four times, and all of a sudden you begin to realize, wait a minute, that didn't sound right. You do a little research and you realize that he believes some weird doctrine somewhere. We have to practice discernment. Because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. And so he says, for many walk... And that's the, the idea of daily conduct, a manner of life. It's a course of living. It's their pattern. And he says there that he's often told them. Many walk of whom I've told you often. This isn't the first time he brought this up. He was concerned about this. Uh, you can go back and read in Acts 20, verse 31. Actually, turn back to Acts 20, verse 31, where um, Paul is, is speaking here. And he's talking to the, the Ephesian elders here. It says in verse 30, uh, 31 there, or verse 30, Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things 
to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, because they're, they're, they're raising themselves up, watch and remember that for three years, look at Paul's heart here, three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Talk about passion. Talk about a concern for the church. Three years, every day, night and day, he was warning everyone with tears. Look at what he says in verse 32. So now, brethren, I command you to God, commend you to God, and to what? And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he says, if you want to combat this, if you want to have some discernment, where do you go? You go to the Word of God. That's where Christ always went. That's where we always need to go. The only thing that he could commend them to was to God and to his Word, because he understood that it was the Word that builds us up. See, do you understand that the Word is a protection for us? Think of it this way. If you, if you, uh, Say you got hired on with the Redwood City Fire Department. In your first day of orientation, they threw you in a room and they said, here, read this manual. This, this is basically your training. <laughs> Tomorrow you'll be out fighting uh, fires, so you need to make sure that you read this manual. And so you sit there and you kind of look over the first couple pages and you figure, ah, whatever. No big deal. But you know what's going to happen? If you don't absorb everything that they've given you in that little manual, it's going to tell you how to turn the fire truck on, how to do the hose, how to put out a fire and everything. The next day, you're going to be in a world of hurt because you're going to be out there doing battle with a fire and you're not going to have a clue if you've never picked up the manual and read what was in it. The, the Bible is, is our manual. Somebody called it, I don't know who it was, but they said Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. And it's so true. And yet so many times... it. it it gets knocked down on our bookshelves. You know, we come across them, ah, yeah, 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 I read the Bible, I read the Bible. You're protected by the Word of God. If you don't know the Word, you're not protected. That's why it's important to study, to show yourself approved. And so, he says that I've often told you, and now I tell you even weeping. This is basically the only time where Paul is actually weeping when he's writing this letter in Scripture. That's how passionate he was. He's, he's presently crying. We're told in other places that he weeps, but he's not, we're not told that he's crying as he's writing this. It's the only time that he says he, he's crying as he's writing this. His heart's broken. When you say, well, what's he crying about? Well, it doesn't really tell us, but I'm sure that he's crying over the lost, the people who are enemies of the cross. He's maybe crying over those who've been deceived by these people. Who knows? Well, who are these? Who are these enemies? Well, there's two choices, basically. There's two choices, Jews or Gentiles. <laughs> are they Jews or are they Gentiles? They could be both. Remember when we talked about the Judaizers, the people that, that kind of aligned themselves with the church that Paul warned them about? They kind of came into the fold of the church and they said, yes, yes, you know, we believe in Christ, we believe the gospel, we believe he died, we believe he rose again and everything, and that's great, you new Christians, that you're trusting in that. But there's a couple other things that we want to share with you that you need to um, kind of bring into your life in order to be truly saved. And those two things were what? Circumcision, remember, and the following of the law. 
They said, if you really want to be a Christian that God approves, then you have to kind of add these two things to the cross of Christ. Not that we don't deny the cross of Christ. We don't. We believe in it. And we're kind of aligning ourselves with you guys. But, you know, if you really want to be part of God's family, then you need to kind of add these two things, circumcision and following the law. And they were called Judaizers. And what the problem was is they were adding to what Christ did. They were adding to the work of the cross. They were saying basically that the cross isn't sufficient to save. And so Paul really went after them. He called them the false circumcision. He called them dogs. He called them evil workers. Is this who he's talking about? We don't know. It doesn't say. It could be. And when he says here, follow my example for many walk whom I've told you often that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. He's not talking about an object. He's not talking about a cross. You know, sometimes, even during communion time, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about the, the, the symbol of the cracker that, that symbolizes the body of Christ, and we'll be talking about the grape juice that symbolizes the blood of Christ. Well, some people have come to believe that the blood of Jesus is some kind of, uh, it wasn't just, like human blood. See, when the Bible refers to the blood of Christ or the work of the cross, it's talking about the atonement, the, 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 the whole work of that sacrifice. It's not just talking about one element. It's not just talking about a wooden cross or a cup of blood. He's talking about the whole work of Christ. And so when he says they're enemies of the cross of Christ, he's not talking, you know, they're out there throwing darts at the cross. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about they're adding to, the Judaizers were adding to the idea that Christ alone could save. You know what? We have that today. You speak to any Roman Catholic, you ask them honestly, and they go ask their priests about how they're saved. They will not say that they're saved purely by the grace of God. And by the work of Christ on the cross. They won't deny that. They don't deny it. And it's unfortunate because they're, they're deceived. No one in, in Roman Catholicism would deny Christ. They wouldn't deny the deity of Christ. They wouldn't deny the cross. They wouldn't deny that he, he, was a, he died as a substitute for sin. They wouldn't deny the resurrection. But they would say that, well, that's not quite sufficient. There are some things that the church wants you to do to add to that. They would do the same thing that the Judaizers do, did back then. You must accomplish certain spiritual deeds in your life. In other words, you have to earn it. They would talk about grace, but they also add very certain definite works that you have to do to earn God's favor. See, anybody that comes along, beloved, and says, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus and I believe everything he did and, and that he died and all that. But by the way, I also believe that you have to do this. Red flags should go up immediately in your mind. It's the same error. They're saying that the cross is not sufficient. And the Bible says there's no way that they could be friends of the cross. They're enemies of the cross because they're denying the very saving power that it portrays. doesn't mean that we, you know have attitudes about these people, they're, they're lost just like everybody else is lost, just like we were lost at one point. 
And we need to reach out to them. We need to continue to share the gospel of Christ with them. We can't just assume because they're part of a church that, well, you know, they're probably on the right road. What if, they're, what if you're wrong? What if they're not on the right road? See, a lot of times we just think because somebody's religious, because we see their car pull out of their, their, their driveway on Sunday mornings, well, they're, they're religious. Where else would they be going? They must be going to church. If they're going to church, I'm sure God looks down favorably on them and he'll save them. It's not true. God saves those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And it sounds hard sometimes. And I don't mean it to sound that way, but you know what? I mean, I grew up for 18 years in the Catholic Church, and I, I had never heard the gospel of the grace of, of Jesus Christ, ever. I heard a lot of different things, <laughs> did a lot of things, performed a lot of ceremonies, was an altar boy, everything. And I thought, boy, this is it. You know, I've arrived. And I'll tell you what, when, when God opened my eyes, and I thought, you know what, I was deceived all those years. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And it says there that the end destruction, their end is destruction because, you know what, these people are not saved. They have not trusted in the Christ of the Bible. They have not trusted, and I'm not just talking about Catholics, I'm talking about Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or whoever you want to throw in there with them. Anybody that adds to the work of Christ, anybody that adds to the saving work of Jesus Christ, they're not trusting in the true gospel. And that's why Paul was so passionate about it. That's why he was weeping, because they're enemies of the cross. And yet sometimes we look at them and we think, well, they're friends. They're religious. We'll allow them in. We'll, we'll kind of call them alongside of us. And it tells us basically in the end there what will happen. It says they're enemies of the cross whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. That could mean a lot of different things. So it could be the Judaizers he's talking about on the Gentile side. The Gentiles were kind of interesting during that day because they kind of came up with a whole mentality of, of thinking that matter's evil and spirit's good. So if matter's evil, then my body's evil. Intrinsically, it's evil. I can't help it. So they had people who were actually becoming religious. They were saying, yeah, I'll follow Christ, but you know what? It doesn't matter what I do in my body because this isn't the spirit and the body's evil. Matter is bad. Spirit is good. And so they thought basically that they could live however they wanted. They would come to Christ and say, yeah, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe what he did and everything. And by the way, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and, and do all this other stuff um, in my body because it doesn't matter. That's what they believed. That's the philosophy that they believed. Any matter is evil, any spirit is good. And in a way, you know, it's kind of come into our contemporary thinking nowadays. That same kind of thinking. See, the, the, the Judaizers, the Jews took the cross of Christ and they added to it. They said, well, this is okay, but now we've got to add something to it. The, the Gentiles of the day, these people who, who believed in, in this, this 
different Gnostic kind of religion, what they said is, well, they took the cross of Christ and they said, well, you know, we believe in the cross of Christ, but, you know, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> because we're still in our bodies. And if we're still in our bodies, I'm sure God's not going to hold us accountable to that because our bodies are evil. How can we help not doing these things? And you say, that seems kind of weird, but that was the thinking of the day. And yet, you know what? I run into people all the time. I don't know if you do. You're witnessing to them only to find out that they think they're a Christian. And you're witnessing to them because you look at their lifestyle and you're going, well, there's something wrong here. So you, you reach out to them with love and you, finally you get around to talking to them about Christ. Oh, yeah, yeah, Christ. No, no, I, I'm a Christian. And they're going, you are? What are you talking about? You're a Christian. Well, you know, I got some hang-ups here and there, but, you know, no, I, I did that when I was little. And that's their mentality. They did it. They went to Sunday school, raised their hand. They did something in their life that they thought made them a Christian. It doesn't have any impact on their life. They continue to live a sinful life before a holy God, and they, they don't even care. See, we believe in Jesus sometimes at one point just to get the fire insurance out of hell. That's what we think. Well, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm just going to believe in Jesus. But I can live any way I want. It doesn't really affect the way I live. One prominent churchman wrote an open letter, and this is what he said. He was kind of defending this whole view of, of you know, once you're a Christian, sins are forgiven, so don't worry about it. He said this, I'm persuaded that as God did not set his love on me at first for anything in me, which is true, so that love which is not at all dependent on anything in me, can never vary on account of my sins. Okay? And for this reason, when I sin, supposed by adultery or murder, God ever considers me as one with his own son who has fulfilled all righteousness for me. Now, that's true. I would agree with that. When we sin, we're, we're, we're still one with Christ because God's imputed Christ's righteousness to us. But look at where he takes this. Here's what he says. There are no lengths that I may not run, nor depths I may not fall into without displeasing him. In other words, he's saying, I, I can't displease God no matter what I do. And he goes on. Here's what he says. I may murder with him. That is, with David. I may worship Asheroth with Solomon. I may deny Christ with Peter. I may rob Onesimus. I may commit incest with the Corinthians without forfeiting either the divine favor or the kingdom of glory. See, he's gone so far to say that it doesn't matter how you live as a believer. He's crossed the line. God didn't choose me on the basis of what I was, so it doesn't matter what I am. That can't be true. It does matter. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. See, there's people today that believe that that believe that, oh yeah, I love Jesus, and love the cross, believe all that. It doesn't affect how I live. I'm still a drunk, I'm still an alcoholic, I'm still a homosexual, I'm still a fornicator, an adulterer, whatever you might say. And it's okay. 
Because Jesus loves me. Well, beloved, it's not okay. And you know what? If that's the category you find yourself in, you better take a long, hard look at your relationship with God. Because, see, this has be become so familiar to us and so common to us. That's why you can turn on the TV and you can watch somebody up there with a $3,500 suit on spouting things of God, only to find out maybe a couple weeks later on a 60 Minutes program that this guy is brought up on charges of adultery and fornication and homosexuality and on and on goes the list. And you wonder, how can they do that? How could they get up... And, and preach and say they're teaching God's Word and yet live a totally different lifestyle. It's the same thing they were doing back then. They say, hey, you know, God's forgiven me. Live it up. There's no respect for the Lord. There's no, no proper thinking in their, in, their, in their walk. There's a disconnect there. And there's a disconnect because there probably was never a connect. They never knew the Lord. Well, what's going to be their, their destiny? It tells us their destruction. Those kind of people, those people that, that claim to know Christ or whatever, and you look at their life and it's far from the pages of Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong, we all sin in a myriad of ways every day. And, and God's grace covers that. And he, he, he blesses us in spite of ourselves so many times over every day. But you know what? You don't ever want to get to a point where you're sinning willfully, thinking that you're just presuming on God's grace. That's a very dangerous place to be at. And these people weren't even there. They were further down. And it says that their end is destruction. And the deity they serve there is their own appetite. They're all concerned about themselves. Remember I said earlier, there's kind of a mentality of, of self-satisfaction. Well, that's what he says there. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. In other words, it's all about what they want. It's all about their desires. They say they're friends of the cross, but when it comes down to it, if you cross them, look out. Don't get in my way. And thirdly, you see there the the disgrace that they bear. It says whose, whose glory is in their shame. Literally, it means whose glory is in their shame. It means they, they, they glory, they, they boast in their disgrace. They boast in what they should be disgraced about. That's how far off they are. It's the person who says, hey, look at the way I'm living, but you know, I'm covered by the blood. I'm saved. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter whatever. God saved me. Be careful. You've got to be careful. It's a very dangerous thinking to have. And biblically, I think that if someone's living that way and they're not seeing the disciplining hand of God in their life, say they truly are a believer. And say they truly are out there sinning willfully before a holy God. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that God would discipline them. In the book of Corinthians, you read through that, some of them got so far out of line that he even disciplined them by taking them home. He said, you're so far gone, I just got to take you out of there. He says here, finally, the glory is in their shame. They're bragging about where they're at. 
But you look at where what they're focused on. It's kind of interesting. End of verse 19. Who set their mind on what? What's it say? Earthly things. Earthly things. John says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You can't have it both ways. I mean, we want to think we can, but you know what? You can't. The Bible clearly says that. You cannot have it both ways. Either you love God or you love the world. And your life will depict one of those two choices. You know, there's not an in-between place. There's no fence to sit on when it comes to God. Either you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior, or you haven't. If you have, then you'll see, see this working out in your life. You'll see what Paul's saying take place. You'll see him making you more like his son each and every day. And it's an ongoing process because none of us ever arrive. There's not a point, you know, you've been a Christian 20 years, or now you're just like Christ. Now you can just relax and do nothing. No, it doesn't happen that way. We'll be struggling with sin till the day Christ comes back or we go to be with him. And that's what he shares with us here in verse 20. Just in the end, he not only talks about our example that we should follow in fleeing from the enemies, but he also says, look at, look at where we're going, look at where we're headed. Look at verse 20. If this doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. For our citizenship is in what? Heaven. That's where our citizenship is. You know, you can be a citizen of, of uh, Trinidad and be here in the United States. You, that doesn't change your citizenship. You're still a citizen of Trinidad. You have to go through a whole legal process, like my wife did, to become a U.S. citizen. I remember those days when she was going through that process. She put me to shame. You know, she'd come home from this thing and she had this book she had to read. And, uh, you know, she started, here, ask me these questions about American history and all this. And I'm thinking, gosh, I don't even know some of this stuff. I mean, it was scary, you know. I'm thinking, wow. And, uh, you know, she had to go through this whole big, long process of, of getting her citizenship. Well, what it says here is, you know what? You're a citizen, not of Earth. But what? Our citizenship is in heaven, even though we're not there yet. doesn't change the fact we're still a citizen of heaven. See, that's why we don't fit in here. That's why we don't conform to the world around us, because all the laws, all, all the wacky stuff that's going on here, that, that should kind of grade us a little bit. Because, you know, it would be like in being in a foreign country. You know, you don't feel at home. I mean, you shouldn't be a Christian saying, man, I can't, you know, I hope the Lord doesn't come back. I, I, I've actually heard believers say this, you know. Say, so like, yeah, I just can't wait the Lord comes back. And you hear somebody pop off, yeah, but not, you know, not till after the Niners game or after the Giants game or, you know, not till I get this promotion or whatever. I'm thinking, what are you thinking? Who cares? I mean, really? We shouldn't set our affections on the things of the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Look at what he says. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, are you eagerly waiting? Can you not wait till he comes back? I mean, just that, that sound of the trumpet and then our bodies are transformed and we're out of here. Have you ever gone on the computer and, and done the Google Earth thing? Have you ever done that, any of you? With the software, you can go into Google Earth and you punch in an address, all right? And on your screen, all of a sudden, it just like, focuses, so the whole world, all of a sudden, it just starts focusing in on that address. 
like two one two Jetter. Boom, and it comes right down, and you can see the cars in the driveway. I mean, it's amazing. And then you're focused on the like the roof of my my car, <laughs> which I was, and, and then I punch in, you know. Um, Crystal's address up in Washington. And it looks like you're just taking flight out of there and all of a sudden it transforms you right over to her address and you see her house there. I mean, it's amazing piece of software. And I'm thinking, boy, what's it going to be like when God comes, Christ comes back and we're just out of here? I mean, are we going to be conscious? Are we going to be like, whoa, you know, and the world's just like gone. And we're in the presence of God. What a glorious thing. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body, this body of flesh. Finally, finally, ultimately will be sanctified in his presence to be conformed to his glorious body. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I mean, you know what? If that doesn't give you security in your salvation, it's God that's doing this. It's not us. It's something outside of us. We can't make ourselves more like Jesus, but we can trust the Spirit to conform us more like Jesus because ultimately He will transform this physical body. No more pain, no more aches, no more problems. And we'll have a glorious body just like our Lord's because He is able. Because everything is subdued under His authority. Father, we just thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, I pray for each one here. Lord, as we look with anticipation, even as we walk out of this building, as we look up, Lord, we, we, we long, we eagerly wait for the return of Your Son for His church. Father, I pray that when that time comes, Lord, that it would be a time of just a glorious reunion with You. Lord, unfortunately, that time is going to come and people are going to miss it because they haven't trusted in you as the Lord and Savior. They haven't, by faith, trusted in the work of the cross. Maybe they've become religious. Maybe they've identified even themselves with the church or with, with other believers and learned some of the language. Lord, this isn't something you learn. It's something that you do in our hearts. You transform us by your glorious power. And Father, if there's any here this morning that have been deceived into thinking that their faith is real when it's not, that their relationship with You is real when there's no evidence of it in their walk, there's no evidence of it in their life, there's no evidence that You're at work, Lord, I pray that they would get on their knees before a holy God and confess their sin, repent of their sin, trust in You, Trust in the work of the cross for their salvation. Lord, because you do want to save them. Lord, that's your desire. You don't want to heap condemnation upon them, but Father, your grace extends to all. Father, I pray that they would receive that gift that you so freely offered to them today. Lord, for believers, I pray that you would give us boldness in our walk, that you would help us to keep our priorities straight, Help us not to get so focused on this world down here and our job and accounts and cars and kids and schools and all sorts of things, Lord, that that, that becomes the priority. That that steals our time away from you. Father, I pray that you would strip us of all those things that would hinder our walk with you. 
Father, help us to keep our eyes on You and on those who follow You. That we could ultimately be found in Your grace, be found trusting, eagerly looking into the clouds for Your return. Father, we just thank You and we praise You this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.